At this time, I want to introduce our, our preacher for today, Pastor and Dr. Jeff Louie. I've known Professor Louie for quite a while at Western Seminary. He is known throughout the Bay Area, um, formerly as a pastor in, in, in the Sunset, if you're in San Francisco. He's also have startup and also aid many churches too. Uh, and so here are some cool facts about Dr. Louie. So he's from New York. He's also a graduate of Dallas uh, Theological Seminary. He is a huge Dallas Mavericks fan, okay? So I have... I have no, I have no idea why. Okay, so can we? Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna bless him and, and welcome to our church. We're gonna give him a warrior shirt today. Okay, to 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 bless him to the bear. Can, can we give a hand for Dr. Louis as he comes up? Hey, Lord, thank you for this opportunity for us just to hear your word. And may you speak through, Father Lord, what you have for us in the book of Matthew, Father Lord. Thank you for this time. As a church, we gather uh, not just to hear your word, but to be encouraged as a community, Father Lord, to not just learn your word, Father Lord, but to live it together, Father Lord. And so may you bless his brother as he uh, proclaims your word and this time. Personally, I pray. Amen. I want to tell you about uh, uh, something that happened uh, just this past Wednesday. I teach theology at Western Seminary, as uh, on uh, mentioned. And during the breaks, I always have some of the most interesting conversations with the students, which is a benefit of having live classes and long classes that have breaks and you could just salt, sit and talk. Well, this one student asked me a very unusual question. It had really a little bit to do with theology, but everything to do about life. And uh, she was saying, well, is there any dating suggestion you can give me? And that's kind of strange because it's like, it's not a, this is a theology class. It's not like a, a family counseling stuff like this. And I said, well, what, what are you talking about? He says, well, we've been dating for two months and it, we're getting serious. And he says, if, if, and she sees me as a father figure and he says, um, what kind of t advice would you give to your daughter in the next step? Hmm. Now that's a very, very interesting question. So I was thinking, I said, okay, here are the four things I would give my daughter. If you're going to move on to the next step, and we're assuming that there's some degree of attraction you have and some degree of uh, uh, a connectivity and approachability that two people have, those are all sort of a preliminary relationship things. I said, first, is the person reliable slash responsible? Basically, as a, as I have two son-in-laws. Do they have a job? Uh, uh, now, so why is that important? Well, it's responsibility is important. It's not the job itself. It's being responsible, and life is long, you know. Life is long. You want someone who's kind of, you, you, you know, it's not that they, 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 they can't uh, pull something that, that you don't expect, but it's not going to be every day, okay? And 90%, they're sort of reliable, okay? Then I said, are they nice? Is the person nice? Who cares about responsible if they're not nice? Are they loving to you? Are they nice? Okay. Third, are they flexible? Or are they very rigid, my way or the highway? You know? You could be nice if you always do what that person wants you to do. And a fourth is kind of cl uh, uh, close to flexible, but it was adaptable. It is to be able to adjust to the future. And I said to her, and I, I just, I could, I could see your face as we were talking. I said, those four things, um, are they reliable, responsible, are they nice, are they flexible, 
And are they adaptable, which is kind of close to flexible? Which means when life changes, and life will always change, can they make the change? And I said to her, well, I said, the, the issue is, is, is usually no one has all of the four. And we're a little weak on one or something. If they don't have any of them, forget about it. You know, just, just run from this person, you know. Uh, the guy's you know, just no good or she's no good, you know. Uh, but you need them all. You need to sort of them all. That's, about, that's, that's life. That's life. And that's not, you don't have to be a Christian to have that. As a matter of fact, if you fall back upon your Christianity and you don't have these things, uh, you're missing some areas of common grace that uh, we as human beings need to develop on top of our faith. Now, the reason why I begin with this illustration is because um, oftentimes people in life and in faith think that life is very simple and it's just one thing you do, one thing I look for. Is there one thing of characteristic in a woman and a man that I look for that I will categorically fall head over heels and that is the sign that I will marry this person? Is can you boil down uh, a, a faith into one sort of verse, into one sort of jargon, a slogan that you could hang your hat on? And I have to tell you, uh, having lived well, I don't know. I'm thinking I'm living a long time these days, you know. Uh, and I got probably a few more decades left, you know. The more I realize life and the more I realize theology and the more I realize faith is that our journey is very, very much what I call multifactorial. That there's quite a few key themes that you must have and you must understand about life and must understand about Christ and our faith in order to uh, understand it, grow in it, and thoroughly enjoy it. So the passage I'm going to speak on today is found in the book of Matthew. And we're going to look at Matthew in a number of themes. So if we can show the screen on, Matthew. Okay. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Now this is going to be a very, very important sort of a, a preliminary setting in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus is going to his own. There's always a group that you are most comfortable with in life, whether you grew up there, it's your town. On mentioned that I was from New York City, though it was many, he, he had to hit all the different boroughs before he got the one that I was in, okay? Uh, but I, I grew up in New York City, uh, Manhattan, for seven years, and I lived near Shea Stadium uh, for 14 years, okay? And I'm actually going back to New York in about a, about a month, I feel very, very comfortable in that city because I, I grew up there. There's always a place that you feel more comfortable, your, your hometown. So Jesus is going to his own city, okay? And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, before we go on the next slide, there's just some, some notes i got to have you look at. First, this guy's lying down, okay? And he said, well, it's not important now. It's going to be important later on. And um, let's move to the next passage. And behold, some of the scribes said to him, uh, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to rise and walk? Next verses. But 
that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go, uh, and go home. So it's rise, pick up your bed, right there, go home. And he rose and went home. Next verse. And the crowd saw it, and they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, I just want just a little hint. They're amazed at the miracle. They were upset at the forgiveness. You have to understand this, this, this sort of aspect. And this is, there's going to be a play on what Jesus can do. Jesus forgives because he sees it as the primary. He does the, the healing because it's foundation. The people are upset at their forgiving, but they love the healing. You know, it's a sort of like, it's a very unusual passage where there's a lot of twists and turns and uh, a, 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 a sort of irony here. So the next passage is the next sort of section comes. You have the healing of the paralytic. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And finally, the, fast, the, the last uh, slide. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have need, no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, what's very interesting, uh, uh, this is in the second narrative, which is in the calling of Matthew. He uses a passage about sickness and physician, which actually ties in the first passage about the healing of the paralytic. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There are many things that tie these two passages together. The healing of the paralytic and the calling of Matthew. Besides the one lying and the other sitting, we didn't, I didn't, didn't really uh, emphasize that, but, but the, the paralytic is lying down and, and Matthew is sitting. The, the pose is sort of interesting because one is incapacitated and the other is sort of fully uh, physically functional. They both uh, rise and they go their way. They both are ministered to by Jesus and they both have some liability or something that society is looks down as sort of unfavorable about them. Now, this passage is very, very important, these two passages, when you put them together. For they give you a total of what the ministry of Jesus is looking for, and not just a simple reductionistic picture or portrait of our Savior. You say, what is this talking about? I'm going to look at it, three different characteristics that we find in this passage. If we go back to the first slide again. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Let's move on to 9, verse 9, if we can. And he passed on there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting on a tax booth. One's a paralytic, and the other is a tax collector. 
you probably are more familiar with what a paralytic is, someone who is, you know, cannot move, and, you know, a quadriplegic, maybe just, just the legs and stuff. Tax collector was uh, someone who was seemingly on the lowest rung of society, uh, for they were workers of the Romans, but they were also cheats, and they were criminals, but they were doing it legally. One had a physical liability, the other had a very, very criminal sort of background and passage. And there you have it. These two individuals that Jesus is going to minister to in the context of going to his own. In the context of going to his own, Jesus is brought this person who is ill, and then he goes and meets the person who had a sordid background. This defines in these two passages the people that Jesus loves to minister to. And in order for you to understand the gospel and understand the good news and to understand what Jesus is all about, you have to be mindful of the people who Jesus first and foremost loved to minister to. It's either you can categorize them as the disabled or the disenfranchised or the people with a hideous criminal past that no one wants to even associate with. So bad that even if you associate with them, you'd be the brunt of gossip because it's like it's not like we, we can't even fathom you even wanting to be with these people. Let alone, you know, you're not involved with them, but just the idea that they're so undesirable, being with them is sort of like, ah, this is terrible. Now, this is very, very important to the gospel and to the message because each and every one of us has a segment of society that we are comfortable with, and there's a segment of society which we don't want to even be close to or even sit next to. And I know that to be true. In this great country of America that seemingly is built upon equality, a, with, with the stuff that's happening here, it's a very, very unequal place. And there's a lot of like, you know, us against them in them. And then I see it in the church all the time, you know. It doesn't matter your background. I get to visit a lot of churches in my being a professor. And sometimes I wonder which is my favorite worship service. And I'll share with you. I've never shared this publicly with people. My favorite worship service occurs at 9 a.m. in what they call the upper room in Palo Alto. And you say, well, what makes that your favorite worship service? Is this the largest? No, no, it is not the largest. It probably has at the max maybe 80 people there. It is within a large church. But that worship service only has about 80 people. You would, you would, you would, you would be a lot larger than that group. Well, what makes that upper room ministry, that worship, your favorite? You know what's my favorite? Because that's uh, the product of uh, Peninsula Bible Church's uh, ministry uh, to the drug addicted and to the alcoholics in the Mid-Peninsula. 
And so on Sunday morning, they have a worship service just for people coming out of rehab. And what's interesting about that service, because I also sometimes attend the, the regular service at PBC. The regular service at PBC has nicer looking people. Nicer, not in terms of more handsome or prettier. But if you were drug addicted, you just look different. You dress differently. You aged differently. And they're there. And, um, wow, I love their singing. They talk about the love of Christ. And I was there with my wife this past Sunday. I said, there's something about when they sing. I can sing about the love of Christ. And it's a little bit more theoretical, though it's real. But for these men and women, it is extremely real. It is extremely real, their addiction. Then they have open sharing, which is very rare for churches these days, where they have open mic. Because you don't know what they're going to say. That's the problem of open mic. It's like, what are they going to say, you know? All of them start with, I am an addict, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm a follower of Christ. And here's my prayer request. Because if you are in rehab and you are in 12-step, you always realize that if you're an alcoholic, you will always be an alcoholic. But they are a follower of Christ. At the end of that message this Sunday, I saw an acquaintance of mine there. His name is Ben. And I asked Ben, I said, oh, I, I didn't know you come to this service. He says, oh, yes, I come here because, and he just said, this one's real. This, this one's real. Okay. Here's what we need to learn from this. It reveals the heart and ministry of the people that Jesus ministers to. For me, it is a learned behavior and a learned sort of association because I'm naturally one who is a bleeding heart who will care for people who are not part of my safety zone or the people I grew up with. But if you are to grow in Christ, you understand the heart of Christ and the heart of the disenfranchised. And then you see that this is really at the heart of the people that Jesus wanted to minister and who he wanted to call. That, that's just plain and simple. He comes to his own, if you go to verse 1 again. He comes to his own. But he uh, comes to his own. But he is not ministering to his own. He is ministering to people with a past and a present. And if you could learn to have a heart like that, rather, and, and I'm going to be very blunt here, rather than ha having a heart to worship with your own, to have a heart that seeks to minister to the disenfranchised. Oh, no, you would be closer to the heart of Jesus. It's like finding the perfect mate, you know, good-looking, successful, persona, style, well-groomed, you know. Yeah, but now we're not looking at the outward. We're looking at the heart. 
of a person. The ability to minister to the disenfranchised. But there's more than that, more than just this ability. Oftentimes, we, we in church ministry, we, we, we want to be open, we want to be caring to all different types of people. That's actually one of the things about ministry that we're always needing to uh, exhort our people toward because we tend to, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, fellowship with, with like. But it's more than just association. It's destination, spiritual destination. For with the paralytic, the phrase that Jesus gives to him that will cause him much trouble, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now we're going to go to verse 9. If we go to verse 9 quickly. As Jesus passed, and verse 9 is the breaking point because it's the second section. He says, your sins are forgiven to the paralytic, but to Matthew, sitting at the tax booth, paralytic's lying, he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And, and here's the ring thing, both of them rise. That's the strange sort of literary device that's common to them. Jesus tells the paralytic to rise, and then this person, Matthew, rises. One, he forgives. The other, he says, follow me, which if you understand who Matthew is, he becomes one of the original 12 disciples. He writes this book, okay, from this gospel of Matthew. He is the author. It's like, oh, he's so narcissistic. He's putting in his, uh, a, 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 a section about himself, you know. How much more can you love yourself? No, 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 no. He's telling about his background. He was a tax collector. And it's so memorable to him, he has to include it in his own gospel, in the own book that he will write. It's not just accepting of people. It is the ability to minister to them and lead them in their spiritual journey. From following, which is the end and the highest rank of Matthew because he will be an apostle. The highest office in the early church for the paralytic he is forgiven and you almost have beginning and end or beginning and the growth process of this here's the second very very important aspect of this what is God looking for as a believer as a church First, the ability to associate with people whatever past they have, whether it's physical, <laughs> whether it is a, it's, it's, a, it's a criminal past or some sort of sus suspect past. The second is to understand that the past can be transformed by the presence of Jesus from forgiveness into following, into growing, into being one of the foundational cornerstones of the New Testament church. There's a spiritual aspect. And he's not demanding perfection. But when we believe we're in a process, a process of people coming from all different backgrounds and some doing very, very well and having, you know, great parents and sort of, you know, great education, I'm assuming many of you are, from, are, are connected with Berkeley, okay? It's a fine school, okay? 
whether you are connected with Berkeley or you never even went to college, what unites us is every one of us who worships and follows Jesus Christ is on the same journey with him. First, to be forgiven. And why he comes to those who are disenfranchised and those who are disabled. If we go to the last verse, the last slide, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Here's a great tell of what Jesus is and a great tell of what we are to do and a great tell of what we are. My wife and I, we talk about politics a lot because we differ a bit. But we're all afraid of what's happening in this world in America and with um, what's happening in uh, North Korea and the tension. We're all a little bit, uh, my wife and I are a little bit taken back here. But in a some strange sense, when you understand the teaching of Christ, in one sense, this does not surprise me. For the world is sick. Whether you want to put a donkey or an elephant on your bumper sticker, the world is sick. And the world needs Christ. That's the second great facet of this passage. But there's a third facet and a third group of details that is important in this passage. And if we go back to the first slide in verse 1 again, you're so kind to having be flipped back and forth. We're now not going to look at it through the lens of who Jesus ministers to or the lens of what Jesus does for them in their spiritual journey. We're going to look at this text in a third way to look at what this text actually says who Jesus Christ is. I'm going to read the whole thing. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own people. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. There's going to be a number of characteristics about Jesus. The very first is that he has the ability and the authority to forgive people of sins. As a matter of fact, we look at the next slide. And behold, some of the scribes said to himself, This man is blaspheming. You know why they say he's blaspheming? Because according to the Old Testament law of Moses, your sins are forgiven by doing some prescribed offerings or sacrifices at the temple. It was so big in the law, you had your trespass, guilt, you got, all, you got the Day of Atonement, all sorts of these sacrifices. And to have a person to say, you know what? Let's cut the chase you're forgiven. No way. That's not what the Old Testament was about. You cannot just say, oh, you're forgiven. You have to go through the prescribed 
sacrifices. Jesus has the ability. You know why? Because Jesus is greater than the law of Moses. Jesus, Jesus has the authority. He doesn't need the sort of the, the ritual or sort of the sacrificial protocol for this. Because he is greater than that. Look at verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil is in your hearts? Now, here it is. Some passages say, oh, they muttered amongst themselves. Okay, so maybe Jesus has good hearing, you know? Oh, so what did you say about me, you know? Here's a, here's a second unusual thing about Jesus. You don't even have to talk. Jesus knows your heart. Whoa. Theologically, we call this omniscience. There is degrees of omniscience. One is the ability to know what will happen in the future because you have seen the future. Another is the ability to figure out things that might happen, middle knowledge. This is an understanding and knowing of everything that is, even though you do not have privilege of actually hearing or seeing it. Do you understand who this Jesus is? He's more than a moral man, more than just a guy got on a boat. He can forgive sin, cut to the chase, bypass all the sacrificial laws. He can know the hearts of the people, talking smack about him. And I'll tell you, he knows the heart of every one of us sitting here today. Okay? Every one of us. That's how great this Jesus is. And so, why do church as ritual? Why do church as hiding? <laughs> Jesus knows your heart. There's no hiding with him. And the merging of the need to be forgiven and God's ability to intimately know every one of us in our thoughts is beginning to merge because the heart of mankind is exceedingly evil. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? So let's go to the next slide, verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, again, I men mentioned earlier, this is a sort of a, a flip. The people be amazed at the healing, but the harder thing is the forgiveness of the, the sins. But Jesus almost says, oh, it's a throw-in, you know? Just to prove who I am, that I have authority, uh, let's, let's, let's do one of the minor miracles here. Walk. Because Jesus knew the greater miracle was to forgive sins. People at large, they don't understand the importance of this. They want to see the miracle. That's the way it is. Jesus gives them the miracle. Verse 7, and he rose and went home. We go to the next slide. And then the crowd saw it. They were afraid and glorified God who had given such authority to men. He can restore you. 
If Jesus is one who can forgive your sins and cut through the chase and the protocol, Old Testament law protocol, and he is the one that knows everything about you, even you don't even say anything, you know? It's in the mind here. That's the creepiest thing about God. The creepiest thing about God. He can restore you. As a matter of fact, in theology, we make such a big point in the Old Testament of God being the creator. We miss the greater redemptive narrative. You think God being the creator is great. You haven't seen anything yet. Because God, the recreator, is even better. To make that which has fallen anew. And that's the third characteristic about Jesus we see here. He can recreate. Here we are. We're living in one of the most expensive areas in the continental United States, the Bay Area. Okay. Just read in, a, in an article that a three-bedroom apartment in San Francisco costs $3,000 a month. And in the cheap parts like San Jose, cheap parts, it's $2,500 a month just to rent. I'll tell you something. Forgiveness knows our heart. Here's perhaps what we need. I believe every one of us has baggage and a past. Okay? Everyone has regrets. You might even have a physical, chronic ailment. You might have a burden or memory that you can't shake. You know what I know about Christ? He can make all things new. Because he marvels at the recreator aspect. I always share that I suffer with an autoimmune disorder that is akin to lupus. I got it eight years ago, and it sent me into the hospital, and it made it so I had no energy, and my hands were arthritic. I was exhausted all the time. I couldn't think. I was at the end. I didn't feel like, what can I do, you know? I would lecture for four hours, theology, and I'd sleep two days. Literally, two days. Well, the thing I know that helped me and helped me restore me was the fact that the God that I worship and the Jesus that died for me is the greatest, greatest sustainer an uplifter of anyone's soul. Let him do that for you in real time now. God has restored me in a great way without medication or Kaiser. 
he is restorer. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Continues the restorer, but now a transformer of life. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God. No, no, no. Verse 10. I read the 8 already. And Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. And this is where I will end my message with. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The final aspect of Jesus I find in these two passages that are butted together. Is he is, he's an extremely compassionate and merciful person. He can forgive sins. He can understand your thoughts. He can recreate and transform anew either the paralytic or Matthew. I might be missing one, but I'll go with the last one. The final greatest thing about Jesus is that he is compassionate and merciful. Because without understanding that, you don't understand how this story all ties together. Some of you today, and I would say maybe a few of you, maybe 10% of you, have a concept of God that he's a little bit mean and nasty. Worthy to be worshipped, but a little mean and nasty. you got to change that into a concept of God in which he is extremely merciful and compassionate. And he is a restorer of your soul and a forgiver of your heart even though he knows exactly what's going through your heart. That's the magnificent thing about Jesus. That's the magnificent thing about the gospel. That's the magnificent thing of when you put them all together, you begin to minister to people that are unlike you, minister to people that you would never normally associate. You know why? Not because we have been taught etiquette. But we have a heart that has been transformed. I'm going to speak like a prophet now. That is what the United States needs. That is what the world needs. That is what we need. Allow our Lord to minister to your hearts in whatever way that touched your soul this morning. Allow me to pray for you. Our Heavenly Father, 
I pray for these, my friends, at Christian Layman Church. Wherever their journey are in life, maybe some do not know you, but they're here because they have a past or burden. You to move in their lives and understand the forgiveness that is found in you. Or to lift them up from where we have fallen. For you, the great recreator, whatever we experience, you can lift us up. Some of us need to know you better. Let us know of your magnificence, the fullness of your knowledge, or the fullness of your power, the kindness of your heart. Let this body of Christ be like you, for we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.